Okay, we're ready to go. Good morning, folks. I'm Lawrence Cornfield, I'm Chief Building Inspector with the Department of Building Inspection. Thanks for coming. And uh, with me, I have Carl Haas, who's a, a general contractor who specializes in restaurants and is also a member of the City Landmarks Board. So he has lots of perspective on buildings and restaurants, and he'll share information with us. We also have a lot of other people coming. In fact, some of you may be here who I don't know who represent other city agencies. The Small Business Commission said that somebody's coming. Maybe health, maybe public works, maybe fire. We'll see who shows up. But um, what we're going to try and do over the course of the morning is to go through an outline, which you have, uh, which covers my view of some of the big issues of restaurant construction and remodeling. And the reason that I offered to do this um, is because I actually love to eat, basically. And, you know, in San Francisco, this is the place to eat. San Francisco's great. I just got back from France, and I'll tell you, the food in San Francisco is as good or better than anything that I've found in, in France. Now, we can go into detail on that at our break. But uh, San Francisco is an eater city, and... Uh, I have been working with many, many restaurants over the years to help expedite their permit processing, or more, to ex more than expedite, to help them understand the process. This is an extremely complicated issue, how you develop a restaurant. And I want to go through it. I want to answer your questions. This is not a PowerPoint presentation. There's no you know, set lecture here. This is to help you understand how to solve problems. I have a, uh, an outline. We'll go through it. But I encourage you to ask any questions you want. Um, I will repeat the question back, so you don't have to get up and use the mic unless you want to, okay? And um, let's see, and we can, and this hall is set up for uh, 250 people, it looks like, and we have all of, you know, 15 of us, so thank you for being here. I understand they're going to have a big class here later, and that's why we're, we're in here. It'll probably be full by the end of the lecture today. Yeah, sure. Carl, tell us, uh, tell us about your experience. Well, so everyone here knows Lawrence's background. Uh, mine is in construction. Uh, I've been in construction of restaurants for 10 years. I'm actually a partner in three restaurants in the city. Uh, so I've taken restaurants from beginning to end, uh, from business plan all the way to opening. Um, so, so what is the end, beginning to end? What well, is beginning the end? to end where I, well, I leave the situation. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do operations. That's the only thing I do we just watch out for the ergonomics of operations when, when we're laying out a restaurant? Uh -huh. um, speaking of beginning to end, this morning as I was thinking about bringing stuff in to hold up and talk about, I was looking at this book, uh, cookbook of famous San Francisco restaurants. It was published in the 80s. And um, I looked at the restaurants, and most of them are not here anymore. And then I was walking over here thinking, gee, it's too bad there's no place to get a good breakfast in the Civic Center area ever since the Stars Cafe closed. Remember Stars Restaurant? Of course, everybody remembers Stars. And they had in the back, they had Starfish, where they had a little fried fish thing. And then for a while, they had Stars Cafe. It was a wonderful breakfast place. It absolutely didn't make any sense at all. But I guess they were there prepping anyway, so they had to have, have it staffed. So would you, one of you please take care of this breakfast shortfall in the Civic Center area? Um, well, thanks, Carl, for being here. Um, you, don't, you can tell us what the restaurants are you're involved with if you want. You don't have to. Uh, so Trace Agaves, Picar, and then up in Healdsburg, Cyrus. Uh-huh, great. 
Yeah, okay. Um, we Can may need this? to turn the volume up on this yeah. mic over here. Here, here comes our sound guy. Uh, Bakar, Trace Agaves, and Cyrus up in Healdsburg, and then I opened up Bambuda, but sold out of that later. Uh huh. And uh, he's got—he's one of the people who, when people talk to me about contractors they've worked with who know what they're doing, Carl's one of those guys. You know, it's—it's it's a specialty area to do restaurant construction, and it's uh, as we get through this, we're going to talk a little about a bit about developing a team a team to work on your restaurant, but clearly that's one of the most important things to me as I watch what happens. Um, if there's a, a weak point in your team, whether it's the mechanical contractor or the equipment supplier or the, you know, the architectural lighting specialist, the whole thing is like delayed and suddenly costs skyrocket. And so the people who do multiple restaurants have developed a team, I would guess. Is that your point? Too? Yeah, we have definitely developed teams. And one of the gentlemen here in the audience was mentioning earlier, you know, are we supposed to learn all the code and hire a specialist? Well, even <clears throat> contractors that have been around, unless you specialize in restaurants, there are so many codes from so many different agencies that it takes, honestly, years to get to know them all. And you need somebody that gets into it because it's taken me 10 years to be sort of at the forefront um, on all codes from all different agencies. Uh, there's no way you can just step up and learn them. And unfortunately, it gets so frustrating for folks when you step into it <clears throat> and you think you, or your contractor may think he knows what he's doing, an architect may think they knows what he's doing, but it has to be a team, everyone looking out for each other and really sharing experiences uh, and experience is everything uh, to save you money. So let me talk for a second about all these different codes that are in effect. And they're not just the building code. Everybody, many people think, you know, the building code is the, is the most important code that focuses on restaurants and where's our building permit. I have a copy of the San Francisco building code here. This is, you know, I take it home and put it next to my bed and read it and become familiar with it. You cannot, you cannot become an expert in this code unless you devote as I have, you know, much of your life to learning about it. You can take classes, as some people do, actually go to City College or go to College of San Mateo, and you become generally familiar with it. But to become an expert, is a, it's like wanting to uh, have surgery and learning, you know, trying to learn all about the surgery. You don't. You, you go to somebody who knows, who's a doctor who understands surgery. You go to a lawyer, you go to a dentist, you don't become an expert in all these things. The same is true with the code. So that's one, that's the building code. I brought a card here with a few, a few of the other codes, just a few. Let's see, here's the California Mechanical Code. That code is related to the hoods and ducts and the ventilation system in restaurants and other buildings. Hoods and ducts are a really big issue we'll talk about in a bit. The California Energy Code. This has enormous impacts because the state has recently passed energy laws to reduce energy consumption and then it reflects on what kind of lighting you can put in, how efficient your HVAC heating ventilation system has to be um, and other things. Here's the health code and the environment code. This is the city health code, there are state codes. Here's the public works code, the subdivision code, the police code. What does the police code have to do with restaurants? It contains Article 29, which is the city noise ordinance. And we're going to talk about noise because noise is an enormous factor in restaurants. And um, we actually have a special treat for you today. Charles Salter 
Do you know Charlie Salter? He's one of the city's foremost acoustical engineers, one of the country's foremost acoustical engineers. He's going to talk about uh, restaurant noise stuff. He'll be here at 10. Um, and that's contained in the police code. And just you say, what does noise have to do with it? There's comfort for the, for the people eating, dining. There are OSHA requirements for the people working there, and there are two recent lawsuits that I'm familiar with where employees have said it's too loud to be a reasonable working environment. There's fixed source noise from mechanical equipment, your hoods and so on, and fans on the roof. And then there's entertainment noise, which relates to not just live music and bands and recording music and all that, but people going outside and having a cigarette and talking. Uh, kinds of public impact noise. And all of that is regulated in the police code, Article 29. And for your great enjoyment, Article 29 is excerpted in the last six pages of your handout. So we'll, we'll look at that later. We have the fire code. These are the local amendments to the California fire code. The fire department plays a critical role in restaurants. We'll talk a little bit about that. And then the a couple of volumes of the planning code. Um, and let's start by talking a little bit about the planning department. And we, we were hoping to get uh, Jonas Ionen, who's here, who's a planner. He may stop in in a bit. Yeah. There's a handout. There's some up front here. There's some in the back. Help yourself if you don't have one. Right, right here on each side in the front and each side in the back. Take as many as you like. Um, there are cards here with the handouts. My name is Lawrence Cornfield. I'm chief building inspector. I've been chief building inspector for 18 years. I've worked here for over 20. Let's see, there's a card right over there. I can see it from here. Sure. And um, I've been a field inspector. And I'll tell you, being a building inspector is really a fun job because um, I get into everybody's attics and basements. You see everything. You, know, you can see them growing ducks raising ducks in the basement of Chinatown restaurants, honestly, you know, live ducks. Or uh, the guy who was building the helicopter in his garage in Pacific Heights I saw recently, lifting the roof off the shed, you know, and lifting the yacht out, putting it on a trailer. It's, it's great. So many interesting things in San Francisco. Crazy, crazy stuff and all these great restaurants. Okay, so back to planning. Um, the planning department is usually the place that everybody must start. If you're thinking of doing anything in San Francisco, opening a business of any sort, or even improving your house, or putting on an addition, the planning department tells you what you're allowed to do, what areas you're allowed to do it in, what are the restrictions. And so before anyone would ever commit to any kind of lease or any other purchase, you must check with the planning department. Now I have a telephone number here on the um, page two in the middle for the planning information counter, 558-6377. You can call them and say, I'm thinking of opening a restaurant. You know, it's on the 600 block of Cortland Street or, you know, Mission Street. Am I allowed to have a small takeout restaurant? Am I allowed to have a fast food service? Am I allowed to have a full service restaurant at that location? They'll look it up on their zoning map. Now, the zoning maps will divide restaurants into categories that are not otherwise divided by any logical uh, setup that I am aware of. The building code certainly doesn't. They have small and large uh, fast food restaurants and full service sit down, and they have other types of 
divisions of restaurants and the local zoning for each neighborhood will actually tell you whether it's allowed as a as a matter of right under the planning code or whether you might need a conditional use authorization or whether there might be some other restrictions like up on Fillmore Street near California Street I think there's a moratorium on new restaurants in that neighborhood and in fact Charles Pham from Slanted Door is opening a restaurant right up as a California or Pine or something right off Fillmore and he had to go to the Board of Appeals which hears the appeals of determinations of city agencies related to permits the Planning Department said no there's a moratorium on new restaurants in this area and Charles went to the Board of Appeals and said there's a moratorium but we've had three or four restaurants go out of business on Fillmore Street and the moratorium doesn't take into account the fact that we're trying to maintain this constant level of restaurant business so I should be permitted to add another restaurant to bring it up to the level that was in effect when the moratorium began and they approved it and I think it's under construction now I think or some it's well underway so the Planning Department has all these rules and I guess I should make the point clearly that almost every decision made by any agency in the city is appealable to somebody unfortunately when you appeal it costs time and money and you don't want to have to do that but and you don't necessarily win either but there are appeal avenues for almost everything and of course the same is true for the other side if the neighbors in this in Charles fans case all the neighbors were there saying yes we want this restaurant but I have been to the Board of Appeals every Wednesday night for over 15 years and I can tell you usually the neighbors are saying no we don't want this here and so while you have an appeal right everybody in San Francisco also has an appeal right and the appeal can be of any action or permit so you need a lot of permits when you're opening a restaurant and every single one of those permits is appealable and what that means from my point of view is the top thing that you must do is have a team that includes all of your professional help but your team should include your neighborhood too because if you are not working with your neighborhood if they are not with you you will not have a successful operation you will be stopped and stymied and held up even if it isn't an appeal you will find that you know your your people will be complaining about the noise or the smell or the sound even if it's not truly a significant direct impact on them they're unhappy and they feel a need to be have a remedy to their unhappiness so you really have to take into consideration the neighbors what do you think about that absolutely getting out and doing a little bit of legwork even before you start construction just kind of let everybody know what's going on especially if you're going to go through a conditional use change where maybe it wasn't set up for a restaurant previously get in there talk to them tell them about the food give them a picture get paint them almost a romantic picture of what it's going to be if you will and their complaints will surface real quickly but it's better to get them out now at the beginning of it and talk it through and understand where they're coming from to work through it with them rather than wait to get their anger built up if you will and frustration built up and then come come on a complaint level officially and they will be upset if they're kept in the dark if you go in and you put paper in the windows and you're doing stuff and the neighbors don't know they will be upset why are they hiding this what's going on so the very first thing if you think if you're committing to something is to let the neighbors know put a sign up in the window here's what's coming we invite your comments here's what we're hoping to do 
you know, build a bridge to the community. There's nothing more important in this city. Well, and something that's been pretty common recently is uh, doing sort of a meeting ahead of time. Like you're saying, put up a sign in the window, <clears throat> excuse me, and almost calling like a neighborhood meeting <clears throat> right when you get going and just kind of meet everybody, introduce them to the team, and just get it going. It's just great public relations. Right. And you might say, hey, it's my business, it's my risk, it's my money. Why should I do this with the neighbors? And maybe they're mad and I don't like them, they don't like me. Well, you know, that's flying into the face of trouble. And I wouldn't, you know, if that's your attitude in the neighborhood, then, you know, it's going to be reflective in your relationships. And, and so let me tell you a little, uh, a little story about the Inner Sunset. I've lived there for 30 years now. And uh, I was the president of the Inner Sunset Neighborhood Association. Oy vey. I can tell you, neighborhood groups, I love my neighborhood and I love my neighbors, but, you know, I, all day long my phone would be ringing at work, the neighbors saying, what are you going to do about that mattress lying on the sidewalk in front of my house? Okay, I'll, I'll call Public Works. Um, so a Burger King opened on 9th Avenue. Gosh, this must have been 15 years ago or so. And the neighbors were very, very unhappy about having a fast food chain, even though it was a tiny little thing in our neighborhood. It was a neighborhood of small, small businesses. And uh, in the time, from the time it opened to the time it closed, which was last year sometime, I think, I don't know a single one of my neighbors who ever went there or would ever go there or would ever have anything to do with them other than to complain if they didn't sweep up their mess on the sidewalk. Um, and, that, you know, they had very, very low business, and they hung in their chain. Somebody really did their best. Some small investor lost his shirt. Maybe. I don't know. But uh, that, you just got to get the neighborhood on your side. And if it's not the right place, don't do it. Don't do it. I mean, the option you have, you are taking – you are actually – you have the world. The world. You can open your restaurant anywhere. If it's not the right place, don't do it there. Location and, and how you feel about it and how they feel is so critical. And somebody said, what if I can't afford to do certain things? Well, then maybe you should think about whether this is the right thing at this time. Or maybe you need to diversify your team or investment strategy or something. But that's a different issue. Okay, so we're at the planning department here. So before you make any decisions about where you want to do or what you want to do, say you want to change from a, a small fast food to a sit-down restaurant, you must call the planning department. They have rules for every neighborhood. And some neighborhoods have special zoning districts and special business regulations in their neighborhoods. Well, it even goes from, uh, from fast, not fast food, but let's say um, instead of full sit-down is a different uh, planning code than a uh, partial service where it's a walk-up counter type. Right. So it gets, pretty, it gets pretty intricate. It's broken down pretty well. Very detailed. Maybe I'll dig it out here as we talk. Okay. Um, other agencies. The redevelopment agency often takes the place of the planning department for buildings that are in redevelopment districts in the city. And, uh, for example, South Beach or Fillmore. The redevelopment agency has the primary responsibility for ensuring compliance with their adopted plans for redevelopment. So uh, if you're in a redevelopment area, you should know that right away. Um, you can call the planning department and they will tell you you are in a redevelopment district and then go see the redevelopment agency. In many cases, it makes it easier because the redevelopment agency has many financing options available. In some cases, it makes it more difficult because 
the redevelopment agency is still bound by the city's general plan, the master plan in the planning code. Um, and so you may have to be responsive to both the agency and the planning department. So if you're in, but often it offers more incentives than not in terms of financing. Um, so that's the uh, planning. Okay, now we were talking as we, just before we started here about someone who's taking over a restaurant. Some of you, some of you are in the restaurant business and somebody here's taking over somebody's existing lease in another restaurant, buying them out. And I said that's a really, really smart thing to do because a lot of times when you try and build a restaurant from scratch, you have real problems. You have to put in all the utilities and all that, and we'll go through that. But one of the big hang-ups is putting in a hood and duct system through an existing building. And in San Francisco, with zero lot lines, there's almost no way you can vent some of these commercial hood and ducts. So uh, hood and duct. It's a little bit out of sequence, but let me tell you, there are three types of hood and duct systems in the world. There are residential, class three, type three, which are essentially not required in your, in your home. You do not need to have a hood unless your kitchen appliance, the stove or something, says this must be used with a hood. Um, and in many cases, home hoods have recirculating charcoal fans and so on. They're regulated as type three hoods. They're not required. Type two. Restaurants have either a type one or a type two uh, hood and duct. A type two uh, allows heat and steam, but not grease-laden vapors, okay? A type one hood is required for anything which produces grease-laden vapors, so frying, a grill, anything that might produce grease-laden vapors. The big difference is that a type one hood has to be all welded, and it has a lot of other kind of clean-out requirements and so on, whereas a type two hood basically is just to get rid of heat and steam and, and vapors. Um, exhausting hoods requires both the hood that collects the, the vapors and then the exhaust system, which typically is a duct and a fan that forces it out. And I should mention that where you're forcing air out, you have to have air to come in to replace it, right? So we have something called makeup air requirements and makeup air when you go into some kitchens, or sorry, in some dining areas, you feel there's a breeze coming across the, the floor or coming in somewhere. And that often is because the duct is exhausting so much air that it's trying to figure out, you know, it's just sucking air in from every location in the, in the restaurant. It needs to be a designated place that is not louvered so that it can't be closed so that you have appropriate makeup air. Um, okay, so buying an existing restaurant or buying a lease or something is often a really good idea because they already have the hood and duct system in place, and it's so hard to figure out how to put a hood and duct system in. It has to be in a fire-rated shafts if it pass, passes through a floor. It has to have clearance. It has to have its fire, fire uh, ansel system or fire extinguishing system, and it's a really big deal. Let me tell you one of the, one of the s secrets of the hood and duct world is that the public works, is anybody here from public works? You could confirm or deny this, but yeah, I, the public works department will allow a commercial hood to vent over the sidewalk so you don't have to take it up to the roof under certain circumstances. And I think the circumstances are 
where you cannot reasonably get it up to the roof, where it's more than 10 feet above the sidewalk, and where it's directed up and not out, and where it's not impacted. And I think they have a regulation about no openable windows above it. And that's, you can see one of these really cool hood and duct systems that ventilate, that shoots out over the sidewalk. Across the street from, at Howard and Fremont, across the street from Town Hall Restaurant, there's like a newish remodeled building directly across Fremont Street. And there you'll see a Type 1 hood ducting, venting out in the front of the building there. It's worth taking a look at. Somebody had a question. Yes, sir. First, yeah, go ahead. Smog hog is a sort of industry term. There's two types of uh, hoods that will take sort of the, um, the noxious odors and knock down on the smoke. And so uh, if you're doing such a, let's take a burger joint as an example. Um, so that's a grease, very noxious odors. Uh, an electrical one will zap out the grease, which takes the noxious odors with it. Um, and then a waterborne one is a little bit more usually used for um, Asian food. Uh, with the spices, et cetera. Okay, so um, you have two basic systems that are different. Yes, they are expensive. They are, I, I mean, just right off the bat is 100 grand. It's not just the hood that you're buying. You have electrical, you have water. I mean, there's a lot to them, and they take up a heck of a lot of room. Now, on a requirement, requirement, so you'll have in downtown areas a little bit more often because you're venting, um, you're venting out, and you maybe not are going all the way to the top because maybe it's 20 stories up and it's inefficient to uh, dump the air out all the way up there because it costs you so much to get up. So um, you'll have it in those downtown situations where you're affecting a lot of different people. Um, usually, how would I want to say? Um, and also, where's the other one we did? Um, oh, okay, and near a hotel, another one, anywhere where you're going to have just people on long periods of time. Necessary, honestly, I, it's always kind of like courtesy if you want to stay open and not, not get in trouble with the neighbors. Uh, one story that we had from before is, you know, uh, a burger joint opened up downtown. That's why I use them as an example. And they open up and this whole billowing smoke, every time the wind would blow, was pushing right into the Schwab building. You know, and so, I mean, it was just immediately you go get one. But, but it's not. So these smog hogs, these things are things that are designed to remove the greaselate the grease from the vapor and electrostatically or otherwise either incinerate it or collect it as well as uh, odors. They are not typically required except for, a f not typically required, although they may be a good idea, except for some specific locations. So there was just recently a regulation passed by the Bay Area Air Quality Management District, which regulates air quality in San Francisco. By the way, the Bay Area Air Quality Management District regulates all um, airborne emissions, dust and other kinds of pollution and lead and asbestos matters with it, where it's in the air. And their office is right here on Golden Gate Avenue, uh, and I'm going to give you their number as soon as I look it up. But they uh, recently passed a regulation that requires 
these kinds of uh, collectors on grills over, and I think it was 20 square feet. I'm not 100% sure, um, which is to deal with the large fast food service grills because it was such a you know, persistent problem. But I would say, uh, I would call the Bay Area Air Quality Management District. Let me see if I can give you their number. I always just do, yeah, 100,000 is usually a rough number. Well, really, there's, are you talking about taking over an existing situation specifically or installation? So what does a hood, a typical type one hood and duck cost going up? Uh, so let's just say a 20 story. foot hood uh, going up a two or three stories, pretty typical installation in San Francisco. Uh, the hood itself actually isn't that expensive. It's getting the duct up and out, like Lawrence was saying earlier. Uh, it's not just the duct even. It's also the amount of space and building the fire-rated fire cavity or even the fire-rated blanketing systems that go around them is actually what takes up a lot of room and adds huge amounts of cost. So just getting a duct, honestly, I've never broken it down, let's say, by floor, you know, maybe, by cost. But looking at that route, easily ten dollars to $20,000 per floor would be your cost. Uh, the hood itself, another 20, roughly. Uh, and then you have the fire systems in it. I mean, there's so many components that go into it. Right. That sounds about right to me. And, this, and these kinds of uh, converters, cattle, whatever they are, uh, would add, that's an incremental increase, enormous yeah. incremental increase. Right. Let's say just the small right. cog, the unit to get it delivered to your shop would be $50,000. So the uh, number for the Bay Area Air Quality Management District um, seven seven one six thousand, or seven four nine four seven six two, um, and talk to them. But also, I want to give you another number. This is their complaint number. They have an actual number where people call complaints in, and that's one eight hundred three three four odor. And that's, a, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, really, you don't want to. Okay. Um, we had a question here in the front, and then we'll move to the back with questions. Okay, so the question was, what is a typical lifespan for a hood and duct system? And I've seen many that are, you know, decades and decades old. Um, there's no reason that they should be out of date or, you know, they, there are certain maintenance items required. Now, there's, there's an interesting question that arises as to life expectancy. Um, people ask me all the time, is my building safe? Because I'm a building inspector. And I say, well, yeah, it was safe in accordance with the rules at the time it was built. So it was built in 1909. So it meets all of the 1909 codes, so it's perfectly safe according to those rules. Um, the same is true with hood and duct systems, and anything else is that it would have been compliant at the time of its um, construction. And there's nothing retroactive that says you have to go back and make any changes to it. 
There is, however, for restaurants that are assembly occupancies, here's one of the first big separations in restaurants that, in the building code, where you have 50 or more people in your restaurant, it becomes an assembly occupancy. It's no longer just a business. Uh, assembly occupancies have an annual inspection by the fire department, and they would look to see if there was any obvious hazard that was posed by the hood and duct system. But what they typically look for is that the, the ANSEL system, the fire extinguishing system, has got the tag on it. Um, so typically, my experience has been that there is no real lifetime to these things. Yeah, the only time we've come up uh, against having to go replace is when you have an outdoor section that may rust it. Uh, really, that's it. And then uh, for sure having them cleaned out the interiors because they do, the grease will build up inside. And that's just a safety factor for yourself. Right, and required. You have to keep the hoods yeah. and ducts clean. And they all have they all have ways to do that. The hoods themselves have a little gutter that run around to collect grease typically, and it should be cleaned. They have the screens that need to be cleaned. And then they have, they're required to have clean outdoors in the duct so that you can get up there and clean them. Yes, sir. No, you are not subject to upgrading. There's no retroactive upgrade requirement. Um, often people will choose to do so, but there's no upgrading requirement. Um, so, and the same is true for generally when a building or a house is sold, the new owner accepts and takes over the existing condition. There's, we don't have inspection at sale or upgrade at sale. It's exactly the same condition. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so the mechanical code has a section in it called vent termination, which says it shall um, terminate above the roof. So, but, but all of our codes, mechanical, building, fire, all of the codes have a provision in them that says that equivalents are acceptable if they provide equivalent level of safety, sanitation, durability, and so on. And so we would accept that as a legal equivalent if, if we believe it meets all of those requirements. And we typically would. If Public Works is happy, uh, we would accept that. We don't, I don't think it poses a safety problem or any other kind of problem. Yes, sir. Well, mo all of these are... Um, fire have to be fire rated and they have to be enclosed in a fire rated shaft and fire protected. Okay, the question is can you, is there a way to provide fire rating right around the duct itself, is that right? There recently have been developed a number of products that will do that. You've probably seen these. Yeah, well there's the 3M fire wrap. Uh, so because what the old standard was that you would have the metal duct and then you would have uh, a gap of air about three inches and then you would do a couple layers of sheetrock and I mean it really it took up so much room. So what's become more efficient but is not cheap is uh, fire wrap and it's a product from 3M and you, it's like a really thick blanket and you put it around 
And so a lot of times if you have a large, long duct run, you still have a shaft that you go down because you don't want to see it from the rest of the building. And you put the fire wrap on and then slowly drop down the, the uh, duct. And there are other manufacturers as well. That, yeah. And the stuff typically is mechanically fastened. It's clipped on. It's not taped on or anything. And, and it's listed. it is a listed product. Listed product. Equipment used for commercial purposes has to be tested by some testing agency like UL or something like that, has to be listed by an approved listing agency. And it turns out UL is one of those. IATMO, International Association of Plumbing and Mechanical Officials, has a listing agency. It has to be both tested according to a standard, American national standards typically. It has to be listed by an approved listing agency, and then it has to be approved. And the approval comes from the city. So when you put in one of these ducts with this proprietary wrap system, we in the city will say, is it tested according to a national standard? Is it listed by a nationally approved uh, listing agency? And then typically, if it is, we will approve that for use. But the system of testing, listing, and approval leaves the final word up to the local building or fire official to approve. And, and is it installed by licensed? and has to be installed exactly in accordance with the terms of its listing by somebody who's familiar with the way it should be done. Do we have another question? Yes, sir. It's always a good time to talk about disability access because it's such an enormous issue in the restaurant and other commercial businesses. First of all, it is one of the highest priorities in the city, in the building department and in other departments. And the reason is um, because it, it transcends the concept of public safety into uh, human rights and um, individual liberty. And so... The ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, is enforced by your local building department as well as by the Department of Justice, but it's, it's way beyond the building code. And so we have been, uh, over the years, taken it to, to, to be one of our highest priorities. Okay, my little spiel. And I completely agree. The, there are two basic sets of laws. One is the Americans with Disabilities Act, and the, uh, and the federal guidelines that sprang from those acts. And those guidelines are generally in conformance with the second set, which is the California Title 24, which is the State Building Code, Disability Access Regulations. And the Disabilities Access Regulations for existing buildings are found in the California Building Code, and they're also found in your handout on page 5 and 6. And this is directly out of the California Building Code, Chapter 11B, Section 1134B, which talks about how one must provide disabled access to an existing building. For a new building, all elements of disabled access have to be provided in accordance with the code from beginning to end in the new building. There are no exceptions allowed. For an existing building, however, there are many exceptions and alternatives, and I'll briefly go through them. But I want to answer your specific question, which is, is, is retroactivity triggered when you purchase an existing restaurant? 
Disabled access at the federal level under the ADA is triggered both by any construction work you may be doing and also by something called readily achievable standards. This is the federal standard. So if something, even if you're not doing any work, if you have a business, you should be meeting what are called readily achievable barrier removal standards. So if you can do something like replace a doorknob with lever hardware, it's easy, it's cheap, you can do it quickly. That's the sort of thing that you should be planning on doing. If you can put in grab bars in the bathroom, even though you haven't replaced all the doors and you haven't even made them wheelchair accessible, at least somebody who has arthritis or something, doesn't walk well, has something to grab onto. That's readily achievable. So under the federal standards, there's this readily achievable standard. There's also um, an issue under the federal standard called reasonable accommodation, and the state law also contains similar language. And that means that if you hire an employee or if somebody is a patron and they are asking for some kind of assistance to do their job, or to be served, you have the responsibility to make whatever is a, a reasonable accommodation to their needs. Okay, employee, you don't have to make every workstation in a, in a restaurant handicap accessible, but if somebody wants to work at that workstation, the workstation has to be adapted to their needs, if that's a reasonable thing to do. Okay, under the state standard, there are th three things, I think, I'll come to go through them, that trigger disabled access. Structural repairs, additions, and alterations. Structural repairs, additions, and alterations, yes. And so the um, question was, if I buy somebody's existing restaurant, is there anything that would trigger me to upgrade the ADA or upgrade the disabled access requirements? If you are not doing any structural repairs, now remember, this is not non-structural repair. You can change the carpet. That's a non-structural repair. If you're not doing an addition and you're not altering anything, changing the carpet is not an alteration. It's maintenance. It's a non-structural repair then no, there is nothing that would trigger disabled access. However, there are so few cases that I know of where somebody has taken over a restaurant lease or bought a place or started a new business without doing anything that usually you're doing some alteration work. Occasionally you're doing some structural repair, but usually there's alteration work. Okay, so here's the rule about alteration work. How much disabled access do you have to do? If you turn to page five in your handout, I hear the rustling of paper, you will see that in the middle column are my little handwritten notes, and it says 2007 is $116,000. If the cost of your remodel work, your alteration work, excluding the disabled access work, is less than $116,000, $837.68, then all you have to do is spend 20% of the cost of that remodel work toward making the building more accessible. And how do you spend that 20%? There's a list here on the left in the middle of the column. It says exceptions number one, 
And you read through all that stuff. It says 20%. And then here's the order in which you must spend your 20%. So if you had a $100,000 remodel, you have to spend $20,000. You'd spend the first bit of that $20,000 on an accessible entrance. So you would maybe have to replace your front door, new door hardware or something like that so people can get into the facility. That's the number one priority. This is the prioritization list. Number two is an accessible route to the altered area. You're remodeling the bar area. The route of path of travel to the bar area has to be accessible out of that 20,000. Number three, at least one accessible restroom for each sex. We'll talk about restrooms because you can use um, unisex restrooms. In, in okay, page five on the left. There's a right in the middle of the page. Okay, sure. Okay, so at least one accessible restroom for each sex. So if we haven't run out of our money yet, $20,000, we would then go to accessible telephones. Now they're talking about public phones, not phones serving the restaurant itself. Accessible public phones. Actually, there's no cost to that because the phone company will come for free and they'll put in those little hearing uh, amplifiers and they'll adjust the height of the phone properly. And if there's any money left, then accessible drinking fountains, public fountains. And when possible, item six, additional accessible elements such as parking, storage, and alarms. Okay, in order to qualify to use this 20% this, uh, rule, you have to submit to the building department a little form that we have about unreasonable hardship uh, request and document what the cost is and show how you're going to spend your 20%, and that should be reflected in the plans that you submit for the alteration work that you're going to be doing. And we'll check it, we'll approve it, and the inspector will check it. Okay, if it's over $116,000, then everything has to comply according to the regular code. There are some exceptions. Okay, so that's sort of the, the global picture of disabled access. Restaurants especially are sensitive because they have been the target of many lawsuits uh, uh, for accessibility for both entrances and and restrooms, but not too many about uh, employee workspaces that I'm aware of. Yes, ma'am. No, no. If you're over, if you're over $116,000, then this little exception that we're reading that list from, that exception would no longer apply. You would then have to go back to, um, let's see. Look at section 1134B.2 general. It's on the top left, second paragraph. And it says, all existing buildings and facilities, when alterations, structural repairs, or additions are made, shall comply with all provisions of Division I new buildings, except as modified by this division. And the modification is the part that says where you're less than $116,000, you get this exception. So basically, it sends you back to the regular code for new buildings. But as I said, there are a few other exceptions, which are very technical. And in the building department, we will be happy to help talk with you about it. But, you know, we have a lot of people who spend an awful lot of time and money trying to figure out how to meet disabled access requirements. Uh, 
We'll help you. Yeah. Just the, the work you're doing has to comply. The work you're doing always has to comply. That part, because that's the work itself, that has to comply, okay? If you're building a new restroom, the new restroom should be accessible, if necessary, under these laws. Um, then it's just that area. Then the path of travel to the area must comply. The restroom serving the area must comply. Drinking fountain, telephone, parking, everything related to your business that relates to that new area has to comply. You don't have to go to the second floor and do that part. Yes, sir. Right. They're in the other division, Division One, Division Two. They're in this, the other sections of this code where it has the, the details of that. And, um, we can give you copies. Anybody needs it, you got my card. Just give me a ring. I'll fax you a copy. Well, but and also, Lawrence, uh, the building department put together uh, a couple of years ago a really great informational sheet. It's the Quick Sheet Guide, and it's um, 11 by 17, and it gives a great many examples of uh, clearances all the way through bathrooms, entrances, workspaces, work counters. Uh, so you I know, I that's thank you. We have a, we have a handout. This so-called Quick Sheets, which provide a lot of that information in brief, and, and they're helpful. Is that here today, or does it go down to You can go to DBI and get it. You can call me, and I'll send you a copy either way. They're quick sheet? Quick sheet, yeah, quick sheet. In the back, yes, ma'am. Okay, okay. Right. Good question. Okay, restrooms. Can you have unisex restrooms? Can, what, how does the city's transgender law roll into whether you need to have separate sex restrooms and so on? It's, it's a big issue. A lot of restaurants in the city do have unisex restrooms. The important thing from the building department's point of view is that we have a sufficient number of facilities. And that number is found, it's not in your handout, but it's found in a table in the building code. Uh, table A29A. I have a copy here if anybody wants to look at it. But basically, you have to have a sufficient number. Um, the building code specifically says that if you have four or fewer employees, regardless, and there are not more than 49 occupants in your restaurant, you can have a single unisex restroom serving the facility, four or fewer employees. And that's in... Uh, chapter 29. Typically, restaurants need separate sex restrooms or at least need to figure out how many they would need. But once they're developed, we actually, the policy is a little bit fuzzy, but we actually don't care how you mark them as long as they are both disabled, accessible as required, and there are enough of them. So we, and I've been trying for four or five years to get the transgender ordinance to be conformed to the building code, Article uh, 829A table for restrooms. There's a lot of resistance from, you know, old time 
people who do public works public services to who say we don't want to have you know restrooms open to unisex we want separate men separate women but if you go to a lot of restaurants and once again the slanted door comes to mind they have separate toilet compartment stalls that are fully private but they have a shared common lavatory area it complies with the specific requirements I believe but a lot of people are not happy with that I think we could approve it but there are issues I you know I without getting into the whole thing and I think over the next year I hope we can try and resolve it I'm working with the transgender law center to satisfy the needs of the city's transgender ordinance in this regard it's a tough problem but okay so unisex so can you have unisex there are a couple of other things in the code that say yes you may have unisex toilet facilities one of them is the section and I think you have it right here hang on one second look on page six in the top left the second third paragraph it says where it is technically infeasible in the area of an alteration to make existing restroom facilities code compliant and to install separate sanitary facilities for each sex then the installation of at least one unisex per floor being altered will be permitted so there's a specific allowance in the building code for where it is technically infeasible there's another similar exception in the California State Historic Building Code and I'm going to I'm going to talk a little bit about the State Historic Building Code Carl knows about that on being on the landmarks board I enforce it on behalf of the Department of Building Inspection and this is a very important code for you who are putting restaurants in or remodeling restaurants in older buildings basically any building that is 50 years old or older may qualify to use the California Historical Building Code if it has some historic merit and the merit is determined by the building and planning departments working together and it's a fairly low level it's not you have to be a landmark or you have to be certified to have anything it's just is this a building which may at some point be deemed to have some significance so it's quite a low level to use the State Historical Building Code if you qualify to use the State Historical Building Code then there are so there's a whole raft of alternatives that help you for example there's something called the preferred alternatives for disabled access you need a door that's at least 32 inches wide not 36 at the main entry you can in fact get it down to 30 and in fact it allows you to have a 29 and a half inch main door if necessary if technically infeasible to do anything else if you have a ramp you can have a steeper ramp in a historic building and it specifically says you need to have a at least one toilet facility and that can be a unisex toilet facility now that's only if the creation of more than one would be somehow disrupting the historic fabric of the building you know it doesn't just give it away you have to show that somehow you can't do it or you would be impacting the historic fabric of the building in many cases we use it for for front doors and facades of older buildings where we're trying to preserve storefronts especially in Chinatown we're trying to preserve a lot of those old beautiful wooden storefronts and we say yes you don't have to rip it out and put in a big aluminum storefront you can use the historic building code 
Um, but it does allow unisex toilet facilities under the historic building code. There's also a few other things while I'm on the subject. It does not, uh, use of that allows you an exemption from the California Energy Code, which is otherwise uh, quite a difficult code to meet for a lot of buildings where you're doing substantial remodel. But the uh, equipment and fixtures themselves have to be energy compliant. There are also structural provisions and, and a lot of other provisions in a historic building worth looking at. Somebody had a question. Yes, sir. Actually, it's, yeah. Let's, it's, let's re briefly repeat the question for the, uh, for the televised no, portion. No, I'll repeat it. It's um, when folks step in uh, and you're, the question was when you're going to buy an existing business or you're signing a lease that uh, you're going to turn into a restaurant from that was not before, previously a restaurant. Uh, are there um, times when you sign on and then you find out later that it's completely a different animal than you're expecting. Costs are completely different. Uh, yes, that's a big resounding yes. There are horror stories out there, many, many, many. Uh, one, for example, uh, we were brought in to try and help this gentleman out who had signed on for a national franchise. The national franchise has a basic construction cost, and they hand it out and what it's going to be per square foot. This franchisee who had bought the rights to the San Francisco area one already signed a lease, a 10-year lease with two fives, and paid for the franchise in advance. He doubled, or no, I think he did 250% of what the expected construction costs were going to be. He did not get any terms in his lease for venting, for proper gas being brought up to that level, and electrical. And he ended up folding. He ended up walking away from the franchise, never doing one ounce of construction, because even 250% of what they estimated in the, from the franchise, even 250% of that construction cost was still not enough to get him open. And he just never happened. The project never happened. So this is where, yes, the team has to come in. And if we want to name the team, I mean, it's all the way from lawyer, architect, contractor. Uh, you want everybody involved. And with the contractor, they bring in electrical, plumbing, mechanical. Uh, and it's best, honestly, just to pay folks a nominal fee to come in ahead of time and talk about the highs and lows of each individual location before signing a lease. Most architects will work with you in that way. They'll give you an hourly rate. You want to just hire them by the hour. It's cheap. If it's 150 bucks an hour, it's cheap to get them to do this. They are also masters of the code, or they know who to call to get these answers. So I would, I would always have an architect by my side. Yes, sir.
so uh, how much would a fee be is the question. So from an architect, let's just say, take one as an architect as an example. For an overall, the general rule of thumb is 15, 20% of construction costs. Okay, well, that means you gotta get, have construction costs. It's the chicken and the egg thing. Um, so you definitely want to try and get a ballpark on that and it'll give you soft costs. Now when it comes to upfront costs, like we're talking about consulting, consulting, I would get upfront from the architect what they're gonna provide or any contractor, anybody that you're bringing in. Have them just do a quick little sketch, uh, write out all the different information that they're going to be surveying for you is a great way of going about that. And then an estimated amount of hours per item. And it's a really good way of breaking it down. It could be an hour, two hours per item out of five items. So you've got a 10 hour. So you've got $1,500, $2,000. That's a really good way of breaking it down so you understand ahead of time what's necessary. Um, I and think there was a question also in back. There was one in the back. And then we're going to take a break right after this question. We've been here for an hour already. But go ahead. Yes, please. Oh, I was. I'm sorry. I, could you repeat the question, please? I, yeah, I enjoy having folks uh, bring bring the team in to walk a space when you've narrowed it down. Absolutely. Yeah, you should have your team before you actually got the space. You should say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this, and when I find some spaces, I'd like you to help me look at them and get your team all ready to go. Because often time is of the essence, and you, you don't want to be trying to figure out who you should get then. Let's take uh, 10 to 15 minutes, and we'll be back here uh, at uh, 10. Is that right? Okay, thank you very much. information from the city's that'll stop it okay welcome back uh, once again I'm That'll stop it. Okay, welcome back. Uh, once again, I'm Lawrence Cornfield, Chief Building Inspector, and I'm pleased to have you here today. And uh, Carl Haas is with me, and he'll be right back. But we uh, have a couple folks who've come who are going to share some other information from the city's uh, Small Business Commission and their services. And so let me ask Agnes to come on up and tell us a little bit about what the city's doing to help solve this immensely complicated how do we deal with restaurant permitting and operating issues and maybe we can uh, give you a few phone numbers for contacts. Come on over here and stand or sit, whatever makes you comfortable. And uh, introduce yourself. 
Thanks, Lawrence. Um, as Lawrence mentioned, my name is Agnes Briona Zubalde, and I'm the director of the San Francisco Small Business Commission. We're just located in City Hall in room 448. Um, my Direct phone number, our office phone number is 554-6134. And we provide um, an array of different um, information and referral services for restaurants um, and other small businesses that want to either uh, expand or identify you know, commercial spaces in the city. Um, we work very closely with the Small Business Administration, which is at 455 Market Street. And I brought along one of our um, technical assistance providers um, who works out of the Small Business Development Center, um, Louise Dawson, who is actually a restaurant consultant um, that helps uh, businesses like yours um, identify the, the best steps to undergo before you even decide to want to remodel or expand your business. Um, we at the commission also uh, connect you with other resource providers beyond what the city provides as far as technical assistance through the, the building department or the planning department to other nonprofit organizations that provide free resources. So if you're in the, uh, the looking for free, low-cost resources to help you figure out what you need to do to you know, market your business, to expand your business, to remodel your business, I think uh, the best thing to do is, you know, seek out some free resources first and then, you know, work with some consultants to help you figure out the entire package before um, going forward and signing any leases or entertaining any kind of contracts. Um, because as you all know, you know, time and uh, money is important to you and you have a lot of things on your plate and I think that it's really important to talk to experts. So again, we have a website. Um, you can find us on um, sfgov.org. Um, our office is the Small Business Commission. And I so Agnes, tell us about the work you're doing with SPUR. I think that's really great. Right. We're um, currently our office has been working on a pilot project with the San Francisco Planning and Urban Research Organization, and they're looking to help us figure out a um, a tool set to help streamline the permit process for restaurants. It's a t pilot test that we have undergone um, some intensive research at looking at the various departments that are responsible for permitting. Everyone from the planning department to the building department to the health department to the entertainment commission um, as well as the fire department are all part of the um, development phase of being able to start open or expand a restaurant. And so we've been um, looking at all the different forms, all the different steps that one would take um, to simplify the step for you. Um, and hopefully what we'd like to do is to um, introduce a top ten list that we could circulate to the various departments that are in the city so that when you or others that you know are wanting to get into this business, you're not stuck in not knowing who to go to first. Um, and what we'd like to do is hopefully automate this top ten list and get it to various organizations like the Small Business Development Center or the Small Business Administration, which is a federal arm of the city, and then also get it to the various departments. Um, I think you all know that, you know, there's massive information that you're having to read and review and codes and um, exceptions and all these different things can sometimes make it very difficult for you to actually 
do what you need to do best, which is, you know, be creative and run your businesses. So what we'd like to do is to make that your life a little more simple um, so that you do have just a quick sheet. I think you, uh, Lawrence, alluded to this quick sheet. Um, well, we're trying to create a top ten list that, you know, you, you probably can just keep pretty handy in your, you know, your folder or wherever you want to keep it. And you could use it as sort of your, your guidebook in, in terms of wanting to, to know what you need to do to, you know, s expand your restaurant or, or start a new one. Um, and what I've heard uh, through the presentation already is, you know, the quickest step is if you do want to start a restaurant, the most ideal would be to just take over an existing lease. I mean, without having to go to the whole, con you know, you'll right. probably talk about the conditional use permit process, but that's a whole nother layer of complication. So, I mean, one of those things in our uh, highlights of our top ten list is, you know, try to move into some space that, you know, is pretty easy to move into. You've already. heard that before, right? Um, what I would like to do uh, is go through some of our outline and uh, invite Louise Dawson to comment as we move along in this. And we're going to try and go real fast. And then in a, about a half an hour, Ch uh, Charlie Salter, who's one of the city or nation's leading acoustical experts, is going to talk about some of the sound issues as we talked about earlier, that there are four main noise issues related to restaurants, patron noise, employee issues, fixed source noise, and neighbor issues. And we'll, we'll very briefly talk about those uh, in about 20 minutes, half an hour. Okay. Agnes, thanks for the update. When is the SPUR stuff going to get released, um, do you think? Well, we we're, we're just vetting it with the various departments right now, and we're wanting to test it out with a few um, restaurants, um, and also our commission is probably going to take a look. So it'll, it'll probably be released sometime in the next um, couple months. Um, I think right now, you know, we'd like to be able to make sure that it works before we, you know, distribute it out to um, all of you because, you know, then, then if it says if it if it isn't useful information, obviously, then we're, you know we're not getting the right information from the folks. Thank you. Um, as small, most restaurants are small businesses, and I, I've passed along to the Small Business Commission and other people one of my concerns, which is the f fragility of businesses to earthquake hazards. And I just want to mention right here, while it's on my mind, that you need to be concerned about potential closure and other impacts of earthquakes. We are expecting earthquakes here. You need to consider business interruption issues and insurance, if any, and you know safety, and is this building appropriate for use in an earthquake zone, um, don't forget that. It's really a big issue. And in fact, some people's teams, I know, include a structural engineer who goes in and takes a quick look around whenever they're thinking of, you know, op opening a restaurant or leasing a space. And I encourage you to do that. Earthquakes, you know, small businesses are so fragile. And, you know, if you're shut down for three weeks or a month after an earthquake, or if there's no, no business, like after the 89 earthquake in Loma Prieta, people could be up and running, but there we had no, no business. Nobody visited San Francisco. Tremendous impacts from earthquakes to be considered. Okay, let's... Um, oh, sorry, sure. It's, um, my last name is spelled U as in under, B as in boy, A-L-D as in David E, and it's pronounced Ubalde. I'm the director of the San Francisco Small Business Commission. And my last question is, how do we find out about the free resources, the low-cost low resources? 
you can either visit our website at www.sfgov.org forward slash SBC, or you can just contact our main number at 554-6134. Wonderful. Thank you, Agnes. You're welcome. Okay, great, great. Um, so, Louise, you want to come up and sit up here? Just in case we have questions, you could help answer. I'm going to change the speed here a little bit for just a minute. I'm going to flash through some of my outline, okay? And you guys still ask questions, but we're going to triple the speed of this thing just because uh, we only have three hours. Okay. Um, so back to our first page, and here you go. Louise, this is where we're working. I think we got up to the first page. We got up to the planning department, didn't we? I think that's the first thing on the first page. Um, other agencies that are involved, and there are many, include, of course, the building department. And the building department looks at mechanical, electrical, plumbing, and building issues. There's, of course, the fire department is involved, and they both do plan review. They look at your sprinkler stuff. And if you have a restaurant that seats 50 people or more, you become an assembly occupancy. And the fire department then will do an annual inspection, and maybe more than annual, I think they do for fire extinguishers and other stuff. But you will have to have a long working relationship with the fire district inspector, not just during the course of your construction. Uh, health department, of course, you know they have their they do both a um, plan review and uh, of your uh, submittals, and we'll talk about that in a second. And then they also issue your various kinds of permits and licenses, and they continually do inspections uh, not scheduled. They'll come through, and you, you're, I'm sure you're all aware of health department inspection issues and their recent scoring, and you see that in people's windows. You know, I scored 100, and, uh, or I scored a 62. <laughs> I, I don't know what the... I've seen a few in the 90s and 100s. I don't, I've never seen anybody post one below 70. Um, what is the lowest score you, you can get and still operate? Anybody know? No, we don't know. Um, the Entertainment Commission. Now, the Entertainment Commission is a city agency that was created not very long ago, I think maybe four, four or five years ago at the most. 2004, okay. And it was... Uh, to consolidate permitting issues from other agencies regarding uh, nighttime entertainment and other entertainment, including if you in your restaurant ever want to have live music, if you want to have a DJ, um, you need to get permits from the Entertainment Commission. And their office is in City Hall. Um, and I could probably even find their number. But it's uh, one of the things I've been advising people to do uh, is if they think that in the future they might wish at some point to have entertainment in their venue, they should consider that when they first begin their development of their plans because you have to address the noise issues of entertainment as well as uh, get these permits. And there are special space and exiting issues. If you think you might have more people than you might normally seat for dining, you should plan on that at the earliest uh, phase of your design planning. Ah, here we go. Phone numbers for the Entertainment Commission maybe. We'll find them. Okay. All right. Um, Department of Public Works is on my list here because Public Works um, issues both permits for construction, tables, uh, excuse me, um, uh, 
street space permits, scaffolding permits, and they also issue the permits for tables and chairs, and many restaurants do want tables and chairs. It's been the policy of the city and the Board of Supervisors to encourage the use of tables and chairs and awnings and such in the fronts of buildings to increase the liveliness of the street scene. And even though they have recently increased fees for tables and chairs, I encourage everyone to work with Public Works. They want table and chair services. Can I ask a question about that? Yeah, sure. Can a neighbor somehow fight for wanting to put a table or a chair if they're, like, right next door? Can they come and say, I'm a neighbor and I don't want you to have that? So the question is, can a neighbor appeal or protest the use of tables and chairs? Well, yeah, about a month ago at the Board of Appeals, there was a cafe in the Mission that had a permit issued by the Department of Public Works for tables and chairs, and the neighbor appealed and won. And there are not going to be tables and chairs on that side of the restaurant. They'll only be on the front side. So, yes, neighbor issues in San Francisco are so strong, neighbors have rights to appeal anything, any permit, and you need a permit for everything. So everything is appealable, which is why it makes sense to be on excellent terms with all your neighbors all the way through your process. Did we find the Entertainment Commission? Oh, no. Okay. I've got it on my Palm Pilot. I'll look it up in a second. Okay. Then there are all these other – there are a lot of other local agencies I just wanted to mention, some of the federal and state agencies. There's the ABC, of course, and your liquor license issues. A lot of people will use a broker for licenses, right, I understand, although people have said that for wine and beer license, that's not as critical as where you want to have full service. Is that your understanding? But once again, why would you want to become an expert, I ask, in all these things? You want to have somebody who already knows the people at the ABC to be in touch with. Okay. The Entertainment Commission number, 554-5793. That's great. Thank you very much. Appreciate that, Louise. Yes. Back to the sidewalk issue. Do we go to DPW to get that permit? Yes. DPW. Now, DPW has a desk with people at 1660 Mission Street, which is called the San Francisco Permit Center, where the Building and Planning Department offices are. And DPW has a desk there where they have someone from the street use and mapping section, and they can actually do the permit submittals there. I think they send them over to Stevenson Street for review, and they actually have an inspector go out and measure the sidewalk width, and they do a report before they approve the use. You don't have to have the phone number for that. Yes, right. Yeah, it's 554-5810, 875 Stevenson Street on the fourth floor. Yeah, fourth floor. Yes, they have a person over there who will assist you as well. Either one. Stevenson is where they actually do the processing of the thing. Yeah. Okay. And I just thought I'd mention, oh, we've got more questions in the back here before I move along. Yeah, sure, go ahead. Okay, people from Public Works are saying you should go directly to Stevenson Street to get table and chair permits. Okay. But you have the forms, do you not? You have the forms at 1660 Mission, the application forms? Oh, you don't? Okay, I'm corrected. Okay, thank you. 
Okay, things that complicate, and I just threw this in for our own amusement. Everything is expensive, and everything is, it's like when you're doing a remodel, everything's about twice as expensive as you think it's going to be, and that's certainly true for restaurant remodels. Um, and it's both the, the rental cost, property cost, and everything, every other cost you can imagine is extremely high. Local construction costs are high. Isn't that, do you have any comments on local? Okay, let's pass the mic down there just a little bit. Well, as we were saying before, um, even that franchisee where they were taking national average construction costs and they times them two and a half uh, times uh, was not even close to our costs here locally. Uh, so, yeah, please, please, not just not just from architects, designers, get a contractor out there to do a rough budget for you because they're the only ones that can then stand by their number. And it's difficult in the city sometimes to actually find a contractor who can start and work on your schedule. Mm -hmm. And so your costs are actually uh, incremental as they get carried forward. There are inflation costs, there's delay costs, and so on. Correct. And then also uh, a big thing on construction costs is sitting down with your team ahead of time and look for missing components in the plans ahead of time. Uh, we almost call it a red line party because you want to go through and find the missing components so you know truly in the end what your construction costs are supposed to be. But then also once you get going, a classic factor is to keep riding them up just a little bit, whether it's a little bit nicer of uh, carpet or whatever it is. Really try and control your costs and stay within a budget because once you start riding up costs, it's pretty tough to make up that extra investment. Right. And Louise, feel free to chip in any time you want. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. I heard something about uh, certain park extensions still require union-based The question was, does certain, does certain work require union contractors? Are you aware of any? Uh, yeah, definitely. So uh, sort of the overriding rule on union, non-union is going to be downtown, Union Square, uh, any of those areas, uh, certain sections of South Market as well. The, the really kind of the, the idea behind it is that if you have, I'm going to speak very freely here, <laughs> is if you, <laughs> well, if, if I've just dealt with labor relations for a long time. Uh, so if you have a building where there's a lot of space for lease, let's say upstairs, like office space, and you're using a non-union contractor on the retail component, and the unions decide they want to pick it. Well, that's not advantageous for the landlord who's trying to lease the space upstairs. So therefore, the landlords a lot of time are going to make sure that you use unions so they don't get picketed or have any other issues because they have other space to lease. If it's a low-rise building uh, and it's all leased up, maybe the landlord won't have any issues, and then you can take your own chances at that point. Yeah, please. So a majority of the time, speak right into the mic. A majority of the time, where you're going to see, um, you know, um, where you're going to be required to use union um, workers would be on like a Crocker Gallery or some kind of a strip mall. Sometimes port property, and um, any time that you um, apply for redevelopment money. Um, you're going to be required to use um, union. So that probably doubles your cost. So just kind of be aware when you're out looking for loans or whatever, know what you're actually getting into um, prior. And, you know, something that wasn't mentioned before when we were talking about putting the team together, you know, if unless you're you know, a lawyer or you understand real estate law, one of the first things we tell people is when you're 
you have your investment, your money's in the bank, that's the time you go out and you start looking for your space. Either get a real estate agent or a broker to represent you because they can represent you, they can protect you, or somebody like a leasing coach who would be able to negotiate that lease on your behalf. It's the biggest investment that you're going to make. So as much protection as you can get, the better it is going to be for you in the long run. Okay. I completely agree, having heard people locked into long-term agreements that are not really advantageous. Um, and there are all these other complicating factors. Uh, without going through them all, let me just mention the last one, the expectations. You have to have reasonable expectations. Only if you have reasonable expectations can they be met. Most people have unreasonable expectations. Why is it taking so long? Why is it costing so much? You want your expectations to be met, and that's part of what you should be meeting with your team about to understand what, what really reasonably should I be expecting. So you're not frustrated, you're not unhappy. This should not be an unhappy experience. Well, and that, that's a great point is bringing in a lot of folks feel like they're being bounced around or they didn't know about certain uh, permits that are required, et cetera. It's good to stay at, from the very beginning, line out, okay, construction's gonna take this long. However, there's so many other components. Uh, you gotta get your operator's permit for health and how long is it gonna take at the end of the job to get all the inspections done before I can get my alcohol license. And I mean, there's so many components to this. So knowing all that ahead of time just becomes less frustrating because you're gonna know all these components are gonna add time to your project. Okay, reasonable expectations. Be happy, do it and enjoy it. Don't be frustrated the whole time. Okay, becoming an expert or hiring an expert, we've talked about over and over. You cannot truly expect to become an expert in all of these subjects we're talking about. I think you know that now. Um, you need your team, you need to either you know, take advantage of services that are community offered or pay for services. This is a business proposition. You have to be prepared to pay for this stuff in most cases, and uh, that should be part of your budget right up front. To try and do uh, planning, uh, do your own plans is a recipe for frustration, and I see it all the time. People say, well, I drew it myself, and I think this is okay. You know, we're off to, okay, well, let me just take out the red pen and show you how you might want to prepare these plans and revise them. And Well, I'm happy to help. The building part will love, you know, we, we don't mind but it's going to mean a lot of time and effort, and it's usually cheaper in the long run to hire someone to do it right the first time, in my, my experience. Um, on the second page, I was just starting to uh, talk about, and Carl was mentioning, all the different kinds of permits and licenses, and I just wanted to, without going through them all in great detail, the things that just came to my mind yesterday as I was sitting thinking about it. Of course, you need building permits. You may well need a a permit from the Department of Public Works if you're going to use any part of the street or you're going to put up scaffolding on the sidewalk. You often need a separate permit to put in the fire sprinklers or the Ansel or fire extinguishing system in your kitchen and, the, and usually the fire sprinkler company will get that permit and there are fees, big fees for some of these permits. You need separate plumbing, electrical and mechanical permits. They're not part of your building permit. Um, you need a sign permit. The city planning department has extensive regulations about how big a sign, what shape a sign, can it stick out, does it have to be flush, can it be illuminated, and you need separate sign permits. And remember, every one of these permits is appealable if you don't have good relations with somebody. I have seen businesses stopped. Well, their um, excavation permit or their piling drilling permit is under appeal. 
Um, so you really need to work on good relations. Um, people need to have licenses, certainly contractor licenses. People come and say, I'm going to do the work myself. That is typically not acceptable to the building department for commercial spaces. You need to have a contractor's license, a licensed contractor to do this kind of work. And then, of course, there are many other permits and licenses. It's just a bare start of, of permits and licenses and fees you have to pay. Right? You need a license to have candles in your restaurant, and you also need a license to play music in your restaurant. Okay, we have, to, we have to use the mic. You need a permit from the fire department to light candles in your restaurant, and you also need a permit to play music in your restaurant, and that comes from the Entertainment Commission, I believe. Right, permit so to play music. Yes, ma'am. Where do you get information about signs? From the planning department, and their number is right here on this sheet in the middle of the page, 558-6377. And on, under that same note, uh, there are, I think we've created now eight historic districts in the city. And so you have, let's say down at 4th um, uh, and Townsend, we have a restaurant down there, and that's a historic district. So even getting the signage, it was, an, it was also an extra step of going before the Landmarks Commission, uh, not just planning to be able to get that sign approved. More, more, more work. Now, why do we have so many regulations in San Francisco? It's not this hard in other places because the Board of Soups has passed regulation based on the demands the, their elected officials. They are elected by you because you want things done. This is what you want, and that's why we have all these regulations. We have historic districts and sign regulations. We have all these code amendments to the California Building Code. San Francisco is the most highly regulated city I know. Everything is regulated, and everything is appealable. Yes, ma'am. Permits necessary for operation. Um, I think, and the question is, do they have to be renewed yearly? Typically, a business license, that's an annual. annual. Health, uh, health, co or a health department operator's permit is a yearly, and then you're also going to have yearly inspections from the health department. Okay. Fire department place of assembly, I believe, is an annual uh, permit. Entertainment. Entertainment, you have to renew. Um, sidewalk occupancy, do you have to renew that every year? Pardon me? Every year. Okay. Why don't you use the mic there? We can't, we can't hear you back here. Use the mic up in the middle there, please. Thank you. Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? Speaking right into the mic. Okay. Yeah. A lot of time commercial spaces, what we find out is people just get a lease and they come to uh, apply for permits and then there might be an issue with level landing or accessibility issues. I've seen some people lose their lease because they can't meet their requirements. So people need to be aware of that as well. Okay, so that's a very good point that the disabled access issues where the interface of the sidewalk hits the front of the building becomes one of the big issues. You have to have a front door with a level landing outside. However, the building code allows you an alternative where you have one of those little power door operators, you know, a little button you push and the door opens. If you have one of them, you don't need to have a level landing. You can have a sloped sidewalk right up against the door. And if you have one of those, you don't need to have the otherwise required strike side clearance. And if you have one of those buttons, you don't have to worry about the door opening pressure, which is otherwise very strictly regulated under the 
building code. So those power door operators, everybody likes them. The disabled community seems to like them, and they resolve a lot of these problems at that interface between sidewalk and building. Um, yes, ma'am. The question is, where can one buy the power door operators? Yeah. So the power door operators uh, usually will come from uh, a glazing contractor. Uh, yeah, because they're the ones who are installing the doors. So you know, anytime we purchase them, that's who we get them through. And they're actually cost effective. Um, they sound like a big deal, but actually they're not. They take normal line voltage, uh, and it's just a, a big closer. Uh, on the door and then the, getting that push button out there. So really like a $15,000 item. $15,000 item? Yeah, roughly. And that's a lot of times so much cheaper than making a ramp or level landing and changing doors out and getting strike side clearance. It's a pretty that efficient, it's an efficient way to go. That's, that must be installed. I've heard. That's uh, just a single installation. Yeah. yeah. I've heard some that are less expensive, but you know that's the scope of the cost that well, we're by looking. By the time at. you get electrical to it, yeah. the carpenter messes with the door. The carpenter, the electrical, the permits. There, there you go. Um, let's see, where were we? Sidewalk. Oh, oh, that was the Department of Public Works was saying, pay attention to the sidewalk issues. Um, sidewalk occupancy. Okay, before I get into what level of plans, um, we have Charlie Salter here who's an acoustical expert. I thought I'd invite him to come up here and, and uh, share with us. He's worked on so many restaurants and acoustical. You guys can stay if you want. That's okay. Um, he's worked on so many acoustical issues in San Francisco for entertainment noise, clubs, and the adjoining residential buildings. And uh, in fact, he's been the expert witness for the city when we did the cable. We were sued about cable car noise. Charlie was the guy we hired to help uh, defend the city. Um, so I mentioned there were four types of noise impacts that I could think of. Do you agree with that general categorization? Yes, I've, I've expanded uh, Lawrence's list that he has in his handout. Is everybody familiar with the handout page three, item F, under noise issues? So I was just going to um, cover the area of uh, restaurant acoustics from my experience in San Francisco. I've been working on restaurant projects in San Francisco for 35 years, and during that time I've been involved in 150 different projects. And so uh, breaking restaurant acoustics into um, various categories, we have noise in the dining area itself. Now that's a subjective issue. That's not something that the building department has acoustical standards for. Some restaurants want it to be quiet so their patrons can carry on conversations. Other restaurants want to be purposefully noisy so the customers come in and leave. The restaurateur does not want the customers to linger, and they're purposefully noisy. And then there are other restaurants where the restaurateur thinks that it adds to the spark of the restaurant to have it be noisy, and um, they, they make it noisy. And sometimes uh, these restaurants need to be retrofitted just because so many customers complain. I had one restaurateur who uh, had the following perspective about restaurant noise. He said to me that every day he had one or more customers walk up to him, complain about the restaurant noise, and explain to the restaurateur that that customer would never come back. 
the restaurateur, being a veteran, said that for every customer who is in my restaurant on a given day who complains, there are 10 customers who have the same perception, don't complain, but will never come back because of noise. And so that restaurateur found it necessary to retrofit to make the restaurant quiet because the noise was overwhelming. Now, in addition to this dining area noise, we have noise in the kitchen. And so in the kitchen, you have chefs who want to be able to carry on conversations with their staff. And to the extent that a kitchen is very noisy, they can't communicate. Then you have hearing damage risk considerations, as Lawrence listed on the issue. So there are some restaurant, restaurant uh, kitchens that are so noisy that there is concern about hearing loss. And as you may know, in the state of California and the United States, there are hearing loss limitations. And to the extent that um, because of noise exposure, people's hearing is damaged, there is a compensatable um, cost involved with that. And then you also have the issue of uh, waitresses not being waitress and waiters not being able to hear what the customers are saying just because it's so noisy they can't get the order right. Okay, then, independent of these issues that I've mentioned so far, we have noise transfer to the neighbors. And so we have this airborne noise of activity in the restaurant, people talking, bothering neighbors. Now, obviously, if you're a residential or a commercial neighbor of a restaurant, you don't want to be sitting in your office or sitting in your home and hearing the activity noise. You'd like it to be inaudible. And to the extent that it's audible, it's annoying. There's a good chance you're going to complain, maybe sue, just because it's anathema to your business or to your home life. And so then we have mechanical equipment noise. Now, the city of San Francisco has a noise ordinance that uh, Lawrence has uh, kindly uh, copied in the back of the handout. And this noise ordinance was promulgated 35 years ago and is very outmoded and very ambiguous. So it's been my perception, my belief, that when the police and when the public health department have to invoke this noise ordinance, they really don't follow the guidelines as is written. And I'd be glad to explain that in more detail if anybody cares to hear more about that. Now, I understand that the city of San Francisco knows that their noise ordinance needs to be modernized and made clearer. Uh, they're working on it, and um, they're working on it. So one of these days, we may have something that is a little more um, straightforward. Then we also have mechanical vibration. So clearly, you've got the kitchen exhaust uh, fan equipment on buildings, people perceiving, feeling vibration, and complaining about that level of vibration, even though it's really not a part of the noise ordinance. But it is an issue in terms of uh, developing a um, restaurant. And so as Lawrence and I were discussing a couple of days ago, one idea for a restaurateur or maybe even the building department to think about is 
as a part of the design process, as a part of the contracting with mechanical contractors who are going to be tasked with doing it right the first time, why not have an acoustical review and a vibration review of the equipment to make sure you don't have problems? Because retrofitting this equipment after the fact uh, can be very, very difficult, and the litigation that can ensue as a result of uh, people suing the neighbor can take many years. And so the restaurateur is kind of sort of in the middle, and so if it's just something uh, that is clarified as a part of the uh, design and the specification and the contract with the contractors with respect to meeting the airborne limit, controlling excessive vibration, that seems to me to be an adroit approach. In the city of San Francisco, it's handled on a complaint basis. Other cities, they require an acoustical analysis prior to permitting just to avoid the impact on the neighbors as a result of excessive noise and vibration. Now we have the independent topic of music noise transfer handled by the Entertainment Commission. And so the Entertainment Commission basically uses a sound level limit uh, for bothering neighbors, five decibels above the ambient as is written in the um, noise ordinance. But clearly to the extent that neighbors hear music, particularly low frequency noise, it can be very annoying, they're gonna complain. And so it's a matter of balancing the needs of the neighbors with the needs of the um, uh, people wanting to entertain. Then, this is my experience, not speaking as a lawyer, but I, I've seen this invoked. Independent of the Entertainment Commission, you have the Alcoholic Beverage Commission, which I understand is a state organization rather than a city organization. And a lot of times, they have as their standard inaudibility for music noise. So they can take away liquor licenses as a result of audible music noise transfer. And my, my experience is the Alcock Beverage Commission looks at it on a case-by-case -case basis based on complaints and, and based on um, their experience in the neighborhood, et cetera. So I'm gonna stop now and answer any questions that anybody might have. I've seen uh, some of these retrofits be extraordinarily expensive and uh, dis dislocating and shutting down businesses for a few days while they put in some kind of uh, acoustical sealing material or other stuff. So dealing with it up front is very cheap and easy. Dealing with it later is extremely expensive. We had a question uh, back here. Yes. We need to repeat the question. So the question was, have, have you heard of any ADA complaint-related uh, cases? I, I have not. Now, ADA was fundamental in getting acoustical standards for schools, using the argument that teachers who are hard of hearing and students who are hard of hearing are required to have 
a fit environment. And because of ADA, uh, we now have acoustical standards for schools, but I'm not aware of the same argument being made in restaurants. Now, one of the, the saddest um, experiences I have is when you have a noisy dining facility in a rest home or an old age home. And what's very sad about those situations is that people are forced to have meals there three, three times a day. We can go to a restaurant, have a bad experience, and never go there again. These people dine there three times a day. Now, I've been told by these facilities that to a great extent, these people who are in these homes, the highlight of, of their day is seeing their friends, talking to their friends at a meal. And to the extent that they can't carry on a conversation uh, because it's so noisy, uh, it can have a profound effect on these people. So that is um, one of the most poignant acoustical design aspects for uh, dining that um, I have seen. And I've had uh, these bad experiences in San Francisco in these dining facilities where the architect and the developer of these dining facilities just didn't think about acoustics. Sure, please. Um, I've represented a, a number of clubs here in San Francisco that have pretty much close to, they, they've all, they were almost shut down because of um, neighbor complaints. And one thing I want to say about that is that once you are in operation, don't ignore it. It doesn't go away. Address it. It can be something as simple as calling somebody in to go over to the neighbor's home to measure the noise levels, find out what's acceptable for them, and go back to your own place and put a limiter on some of your sound equipment. But the problem will compound until, you know, we've had some cases where, you know, clubs almost lost their entertainment license, licenses over it. So if you do get a complaint, address it, try and work it out first, and then, you know, call some of the city departments in to help you. We did something as simple as um, a big club owner here in San Francisco almost lost their, uh, their ability to operate, and we did something as simple as putting a hotline in from the DJ booth to the residents, and as soon as there was a complaint, they called in, picked up the red phone, they turned it down, and they controlled it. So, you know, very important to, to, to act on that if there ever is a complaint. Not to deny it, you know, we, we it are, go away. you can't say, oh, no, that's not a problem. It's not too noisy. You're wrong. Address it. <laughs> right, right. Yes, ma'am. Sorry. Um, I'm Louise Dawson. I'm the lead restaurant consultant for the San Francisco Small Business Development Center. Lead restaurant consultant for the Small Business Development Center. The free resource girl. <laughs> yes, sir. There are, and Charlie can speak to that. There, there you want are, to replace the review? There are minimum code requirements, uh, state building code. But then you need to pay attention 
to complaints. So what we do in mixed-use projects is we specify that commercial tenants have to submit their plans for their ventilation equipment, plumbing equipment that's attached to the residential floor ceiling construction above. And as part of the leasing provision to avoid problems, because as I say, once you have the restaurant or other type of establishment directly below the residence, they could care less about the residence. They're doing their business, and the people upstairs are annoyed by the noise vibration. And so the mixed-use developer is interested in having it be a lease arrangement rather than something that's overlooked, and they get stuck with this continuous problem. The building code is very strict, actually, in California. It was, what, 74, I think, where the California building code required acoustical separation between dwelling units and other noise, either common areas or parking or hallways or restaurants, other uses in buildings. And also restricting noise from outside in the street to where people are living and sleeping. And we are still trying to figure out how to properly enforce this. It's very difficult and expensive to enforce, but it has been in the code for many, many years. Yeah. And so I just want to back up. There are several examples out there. Lawrence had mentioned before, and Charles, we've worked with his company on multiple projects. After the fact is extremely expensive, not only in construction, but because you're shutting down your business. There are a couple examples where it's not just residences, but someone had a yoga studio above their place. Someone else had a law firm, and they all work late. But the club or the lounge part of the restaurant would turn on at 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock. So it's not just residences. It's commercial. It's everybody. And it ends up, you know, a lot of times you have to actually build a whole physical separate ceiling to lock it off. You'd be shocked at how sound travels through pipes, through any crack. It could be even an electrical outlet, and then it runs up the wall. I mean, it's shocking how easy it is to transfer sound. And so, once again, getting an expert in just a few hours of advice ahead of time is so much cheaper. Sure. Go ahead. And just on that note, you know, I mean, California real estate law dictates that if you're a tenant or an owner, you have the right to quiet and peaceful enjoyment. So going back to don't ignore a complaint, get on it, try to mediate it, try to find a way for both parties to be able to coexist, take control of the situation. It's very important, okay? Okay. I'm going to continue along here. You can stay up here. There might be questions. I think what time are we supposed to be done here, 11-something? 11.30? Okay. I was going to talk about the kinds of plans that you need to submit to the building department. And first let me say we will don't give us too much, okay? We will look at whatever you give us. So the more you give us, the more we'll look at. So don't give us too much. It's a common problem. People will give us an I'll start. Oh, great. That's interesting. I'm going to study their, you know, Paul, I'm going to study their furnishing details. This is interesting. Or look at, you know, the acoustical stuff is not required by the code. You may wish to include it in your plans. But if you put it in there, I'm going to give it a good study. And so the more you give us, the more we look at. Give us what is necessary to look at. What are the things we need to look at? 
Well, first of all, planning needs a whole lot of stuff. They need to see the location. They need to see the adjoining uses. They often want to see photographs attached to the plans of the building uh, facade. You should call the planning counter, and the number is on here, 558-6377, and ask them exactly what they would like to see for your, uh, for your submittal. The building department, uh, almost always you will have an architect, I hope, preparing this. There is no such thing in California as an unlicensed architect, okay? There is no such thing. I have an architect, but he's not licensed. There is no such thing. An unlicensed engineer, there is no such thing. They're people, you know, they're just a guy on the street. You're either a licensed design professional or you're not. So most plans for commercial work are prepared and signed and stamped by a licensed engineer or architect. Um, and they know what's required, and they know the ADA requirements, and they know the, the mechanical requirements. Um, and they also include a layout, a clear designation of the use of every area, something that is often overlooked. And based on that clear designation, we can calculate an occupant load. Now, the occupant load that we calculate determines whether or not you are 49 or less and just a B, a business occupancy, or 50 or more and are an assembly or A occupancy. And it has nothing to do with how many people you plan to put in your restaurant or how many seats you plan to have in there. Nothing at all to do with that. It has to do with how many square feet of space. And actually in your handout there's a little table that explains that on page four. And um, the title of the table, 10A, is Minimum Egress Requirements. And if you look at uh, item number four, you will see that it says, Assembly Areas Less Concentrated Use Dining Rooms. And over on the right-hand column, it says 15. What is that 15? That means that in a dining room, an open dining area, we will consider every 15 square feet to be one person. Whether you have more or less, doesn't matter. That's how we calculate it. For waiting areas, if you look at item number three directly above it, um, it says three square feet per person. So perhaps, although we don't usually do this, perhaps if you have a very clearly delineated waiting area, we may say, hey, you've got a lot of people waiting here and we're gonna increase your occupant load. Um, for dance floors, also we would then look at item number three, seven square feet per person. If you say, here's our restaurant and here's our dance floor, we're gonna say dance floor, fine, seven square feet per person and we will add it to your occupant load. We'll also look at item number 26, storage rooms, 300 square feet per person. We would look at bars that had fixed seating and count the number of fixed seats. Or if you have booths with, that are fixed booths, we will count the area of the linear number of inches. And I think it depends on what the use is, 18 inches per person for some. I don't remember all the details of how we calculate it. Fixed seating is calculated. Um, but based on our calculation of the occupant load, we will come up with a classification as either a B, business, less 49 or less, or an A. If it's an A, we've been talking all along about all the impacts that it has. You become an assembly and you need fire department assembly permits and so on, annual inspections. If you're a B, you're just like another business and even though you might have an annual or more health inspection, you won't be subject to the assembly requirements of the health department, of the fire department or the building department. 
So that's how we calculate occupant load. Usually your plans, when you submit them, will have an occupant load calculation by your licensed design professional. They will designate all the areas, and they will do a little occupant load chart, and we will review that. And that way you get to decide how you want to use your space and what you think your occupant load is, and we'll usually agree. Otherwise, it's entirely up to us, and we'll, and you may or may not agree with us. Yes, ma'am. Hold on. Oh, that's uh, f regulations adopted by the state fire marshal, where they vary from the, those adopted by the Building Standards Commission. No, this is how you would calculate the occupant load for anything, whether it's a factory or a residence, their dwellings here, or anything. A cafe is a. We would still use the less concentrated assembly area because it would either be a dining room or something similar. The code says that we assign it to the thing that it most closely resembles. Probably. It seems like what it would most closely resemble to me. We have people coming in and saying, you know, that, you know, ridiculous stuff, and we say that's not at all what it resembles. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't resemble a storage room. You've got tables in here. And they're, oh, no, it's a storage room. No, it's what we think it most closely resembles. I went to the Board of Appeals, and somebody was saying it was a storage room, and it had a fireplace in it, a fireplace and a, and a bathroom. What, what are you talking about? Well, okay. Yeah, 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 it's just a storage room. Um, okay, so in your submittal, your architect or engineer will do a uh, occupant load calculation. Space layout, we need to see all the disabled access features. This is one of the most difficult and complicated and expensive parts of your plan, but we are required by law to check all the disabled access features of your, of your project, and we do that most effectively by seeing it on the plan and then confirming it's built right. Um, of course, all the structural stuff. We don't need to see plumbing, electrical, or um, some mechanical. We need to see the general mechanical plan where the hoods and the ducts are going to go and penetrations through any firewalls or fire assemblies. We need to see detailed energy code plans. Now, the energy code makes building in, in California a more expensive. This is a very restrictive code. It tells you what kind of windows you can put in a commercial space, kind of lights you put in, how you ventilate it, and it, the costs, and it gets tighter every year. And it's part of the sort of the green building movement. And this is a good time just to mention, and maybe others want to mention as well, green building, and I guess the allied s slow food, you know, it's, it's more, the, the green building movement, though, really has a big impact here. We see a lot of restaurants where we are recycling everything, food waste and other stuff, and that should be built into the planning process and not an add-on. It's required now for residential construction. There has to be a place to, to uh, collect and distribute, pick up garbage and food waste and so on. Restaurants often say, I'm going to take care of that, but if you don't plan for it, the space up front, you, you won't find the space for it later. Um, the biggest one I know is the Moscone Center food preparation. If you haven't been there, it's unbelievable. That kitchen is unbelievable. The cold rooms, you can, you know, drive a semi into that thing. They just served one of the largest sit-down meals in the history of, of the city. I think it was, you know, 11,000 people for a sit-down dinner. 
It's unbelievable. And they have a complete green composting program for that whole facility. It's really great. Take, see if we can get a tour of that. It's really neat. Uh, anybody want to say anything about green buildings while we're – no? It's not today's topic. Yes. Yeah, the energy calculations, as I was mentioning, for, to meet the energy code requirements. There's a special form that your design professional will fill out. Usually they'll go to an expert because they don't know all the details of this energy code. They'll hire an energy code expert to fill out the Title 24 energy forms. They will hire an energy, an energy code expert. Right, right. Well, for your simple cafe, it may not be that complex. Okay. We want to see your seating plan because we, based on the seating plan, we will look at your exiting in the building department and make sure that you have the correct exit width and the right number of doors. Now, one of the things about more than 49 people is you need to have two exits. Nothing but trouble. San Francisco, you got a property line wall on each side and the back doesn't go anywhere. How do you get two exits? Well, usually people put a little corridor up one side, right, and they'll have a door into that and the corridor will run down the side of the restaurant and out to the front. That's one way to do it. Or if it has a lot of street frontage, the separation of the exits is sufficient. What is the separation of exits required to be? 50% half the diagonal distance, the longest diagonal distance. So if you have a square a rectangular restaurant, you look at 50% of the diagonal, the diagonal distance, take half of that, and that's how far apart the exits have to be. But the big change comes January 1st as we adopt the new California building code based on the international building code, and it says that that separation of exits only needs to be one-third. It's substantially less in a building that has fire sprinklers, which is most, many, many San Francisco buildings. And that will really help in small businesses and restaurants with this terrible exiting problem. And uh, so in a sprinklered space, 50, uh, a third of the diagonal distance as of January 1st. And just a related topic, only one exit is required from a residential building, one or two family as of January 1st. That's a huge thing, not for you, but for us, because we haven't been able to figure out how to get people out for this required second exit, only one exit. Okay, that's the sort of stuff your architect will prepare when you do a submittal. You'll do two copies of that submittal, and then the question you're about to ask me is, well, how long does it take us to review these plans, right? And the building department has instituted some over-the-counter plan review. For, for something as simple as a little cafe, we can probably do it over-the-counter now. For a larger restaurant, Trace agave size, it would probably be a week until we can assign it to a plan checker, and then I think we could probably get it done within a couple of weeks. Now, what happens when we start to review a plan typically is that we develop a list of comments and questions, and then we give it back to you, and the, the monkey is on your back. You know, and it's, it takes as long as it takes until you give it back to us, and then we'll look at it. And at this point, when you give it back to us, you call to make an appointment, and we sit down and do it. We don't just put it in a pile. So we are working very hard to, to cycle through permits much more quickly than we used to, especially small business permits where time is of the essence and money sensitivity to time is so extreme. 
Um, I encourage you to come down to the, uh, if you're thinking about getting a permit, you're thinking about doing any work, come down to the building department at 1660 Mission and ask general questions, walk around, talk to people, get a feel for what's going on. Um, we offer a service, as does the fire department and the planning department, a pre-application plan review where we will meet with your engineer or architect to answer any, co any code questions they might have. And if you need information on that, pick up one of my business cards, which is at the front and in the back, and I'll be happy to talk to you about how you schedule that. Um, it's typically not required for restaurant stuff. It's for larger, more complicated projects. But, or call me. I sit there all day waiting for you to call me. Why don't you call me? What's wrong? I thought we had a good relationship. Okay. Um, specific technical issues to be considered in design and plan review. Um, we've talked about assembly occupancy stuff, exiting. 49 people or less, one exit, more, you need two exits, fire department assembly permit. We talked about disabled access. Seismic upgrade, don't get yourself into a problem by getting a lease in a building that needs a seismic upgrade. I attached a copy of chapter 34 on page 7 that talks about where the change of use triggers a seismic upgrade, where there's an increase of more than 10% of the occupant load of the building and also increases the occupant load by more than 100 you have to do a seismic upgrade. Real expensive. Don't uh, don't get into that without knowing it. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Thank you. Oh yeah, that's back there in disabled access. Okay. The um, California Building Code says that um, you need to provide access to all areas, but it has a specific exception that says uh, for certain restaurant for restaurants you may have a mezzanine up to a certain size without providing an elevator to it, as long as all the services that are provided in the mezzanine are provided at the main level. So you can't have a dance mezzanine where that's the only place you can go to dance or something like that. If it's just regular food service and it's the same as the other area and the size of the mezzanine is restricted according to the building code, you don't have to provide disabled access to that mezzanine. There's a specific and strict uh, exception under the California Title 24 Chapter 11B. Um, and that people are taking, we have many mezzanines in San Francisco, and people take advantage of that. Okay, uh, seismic upgrade, mechanical, we talked about mechanical, duct termination, fire suppression, uh, California Energy Code, I mentioned how complex that is. Yes, ma'am. Sure. They send it out every January, and you can see what the, uh, the general increase is, so you can just kind of project it out. I, all the last ones, past ones are in there. So 7,000, 3,000, it's not that much, so maybe 119,000 or 120,000. Um, utility issues. Um, we were talking earlier about, uh, Carl was mentioning how about some of the utility issues can be a really big thing. Carl, you want to talk about that for a second? So in dealing with um, any kind of upgrades, if you have a space that wasn't a restaurant previously and you're bringing in new electrical or gas, uh, getting new water and sewer isn't uh, quite the issue, but getting um, water, and, I mean, getting power and gas from PG&E is. Uh, please, from the very beginning, uh, get that process started. Uh, get the applications into PG&E. 
the timing is kind of frustrating, and we're actually uh, working with PG&E to try and find an efficient way uh, to get it going. But what happens is you start at the beginning uh, where you need a utility room for your gas separate from your electrical, and that's all part of your original framing and your, uh, your structural improvements to the building if you're going to do that. But then it doesn't coordinate. You don't get the engineer drawings back for a while, and it's kind of frustrating. So please get those applications in immediately. Uh, there's also uh, blackout periods where you're not allowed to go into the street in certain areas of the city. So coming up between Thanksgiving and Christmas, uh, you're not allowed to do any kind of trenching in the streets in certain districts, shopping districts, uh, very large commercial districts. And that can really impact you because all of a sudden you're not going to be able to move forward. Um, Long lead times for utility. Really got to jump right on it. Yes, sir. foresee the applications for gas? Oh, honestly, I've never really gone into that. We always just try and get the utilities to the building. Um, the actual supply factor, I haven't taken into any kind of account. Yeah. And I'd just like to make a comment that it's that's another reason to have a contractor um, who has restaurant build-out experience on your team. We had a... Um, a client that did a build out, spent an, a lot of money on it, and then realized af after he had put all of his appliances in that he didn't have enough um, electricity um, to run his restaurant. So it required a long process with PG&E to come in and supply him with more, more power and trenching, and it upped his startup cost by $125,000, which was actually his working capital once he got his doors open. So just a little, a little word of advice about that as well is that you don't have to wait for PG&E to do your trenching. Your contractor can do it for you, and it speeds up the process. So. Okay, yes, ma'am. So she said you need to get special permits for sidewalk from Department of Public Works, put in sidewalk vaults, and there have regulations, and it takes a long time to get PG&E to do trenching, and you should try and get your own contractors to do that work, and I, I would agree with that as well. And while we're on utilities, I would like to mention just outside of the um, PG&E or any other um, agency is this stuff also should be all in your leases. Uh, how much gas is being delivered to the space, how much power, how much water, and that there is already a sewer there. Super, super important that you don't get stuck improving 200-amp uh, service to a 400-amp. You know, you should already have enough power there. And just another note about that, a good restaurant contractor will be able to help you calculate those loads. You can even call PG&E out if your landlord doesn't know to have them verify 
you know, once again, going back to putting your team together in the very beginning and doing these pre-inspection inspections, I guess. Right. Okay, let's finish up here. And uh, nobody is, everybody's happy when we finish a little bit early, I think, and we can do that today. But I wanted to just finish up on page three here. We talked about what happens after your permit gets issued. Well, you do your construction. And normally for a really large job, hopefully there's someone in charge, a construction manager of some sort representing you, the, the restaurant owner. And uh, for smaller jobs, you will have a relationship, a good relationship with your contractor and have regular meetings and updates with, from the contractor. How often do you usually update people? Well, we always do a weekly meeting, but then you have a uh, task list um, for people to get certain items done, find out information, and you also check in. Uh, halfway between the meetings to make sure everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing so you don't slow up the project. Right. I would, I would always advise at least a weekly meeting with your contractor. Sit down and go through the whole, you know, what's coming up next week, what are the hang-ups, you know, so you're really aware of that. You need your inspections, of course, and they usually, you know, take a few days to schedule. It's not too bad these days, I think. Um, some take longer, um, but your contractor usually schedules that, I hope. Um, changes, changes are a killer. Change orders, changes, to, you know, to finishes, whatever kind of changes. Um, in some cases, the building department wants to see the changes, and that can be a slow and tedious and expensive thing, um, which is why it's worth trying to get everything in set before you begin construction and try and lock it in as best you can. Changes are a real problem. Well, and changes, I'd like to speak a couple items on that. A uh, very important clause that we've added to our contracts uh, between owners and then also to our subcontractors is if they come across a change but they don't notify you within five days, that that change then uh, is, in a sense, not paid for. What it is, it, it gets the contractors to get up front with you immediately that, hey, there's a problem here, let's deal with it now. So you're not three months from now all of a sudden getting hit with a $10,000 change, and it just becomes a horrible relationship after that. Um, getting, when you're all done, you want to get a certificate of completion or a temporary certificate. We, won't, we will not issue a temporary certificate until certain things are done, including disabled access is one of our highest elements, um, but we do in many cases issue temporary certificates while certain minor things are taken care of. As long as exiting and fire protection and disabled access are done, we'll usually allow temporary occupancy. Temporary, you also get a, have to get the fire department to sign off and health comes in and ABC wants to see that everything's completed. It's closing a project out is a big, is a big deal. Well, and a uh, thing that always happens is everyone's dying to bring on staff, get them trained, and open the doors. From the time you finish construction to the point where you're able to get your inspections, the inspection process is going to take at least a week if nothing was done incorrectly. That's just how long it takes to get all the agencies through. Then from there, it goes off, and then you get your ABC or you get entertainment. There's a lot of things that pending on there. The whole time you're in there training uh, your staff, getting ready to open. I, You have to be hypersensitive to the actual end date and make sure your contractor is giving you good information so you don't hire too early, so you have time. And what always happens, is it's, it's unfortunate, it happens quite often actually, is you get a crunch at the end and you're scrambling to open the doors, you had payroll for a week or two, way too early, and then you just open. And then it, it's just, it's always chaotic and it never slows down. So giving yourself enough of a buffer before you bring your staff on, get them in there to train, give yourself enough time to train. Just it's, well, not so hairy. <laughs>
Okay, do we have any final questions or comments? And we can hang around for a few minutes after. Yes, ma'am. So the question was, what are the January code changes that might impact uh, restaurants and cafe? There really are very few. Um, we've carried forward most of the San Francisco building code amendments, and the code changes, while there are many, many, few of them really have any significant impact other than this exiting one that I mentioned. Uh, question in the back. Um, if you, so the question was, do you need to install a grease trap if you're doing a remodel if it wasn't previously required? The, the plumbing code currently requires grease traps, as I understand it. And I think it was, it used to be at the discretion of the chief plumbing inspector, and it was changed about five years ago to say they just shall be installed. Um, so if you are doing some improvements that mess with the plumbing system that require you to do it, to, to be digging it up in any way, you will probably be required to put a grease trap in. If you are not doing that, you may well not be required because there's nothing in the law that says retroactively you have to install a grease trap. And you're buying a restaurant, it's an existing operation, even if it may have been closed for a year or so, it's an existing operation. There's nothing in the code that says retroactively when it changes hands, you have to do anything. So I would think not unless you're, that's the specific area of the scope of your work. Lawrence, can I ask you a question sure. on that? Are there alternatives like the biofuel companies and Got Grease where you can um, store the grease in a receptacle and they come and pick it up and use it for, you know, cleaner fuels? I think you still need to trap it, though, for that purpose. So uh, maybe a different kind of trap. I, I'm not familiar with the – I've heard about it, but I'm not familiar with the, the systems that well. But I expect you still need to have some kind of grease trap to pull yeah, it out I of this. I think they provide you with a receptacle that doesn't mm -hmm. require it being built into uh -huh. the actual structure. So I just wonder – Good question. I'll have I'll to find out. It. Good. <laughs> okay. Okay. We have t one more question here. Oh, it sure is. It's in City Hall on the fourth floor every Wednesday. It starts at 5 o'clock, and it goes till, oh, I don't know, goes till it's over. And uh, usually it's 9 or 10. Sometimes it's 11, 12, 1, you know, and it goes. And it's fascinating, and I encourage people to attend. It's, you get to see how very, very important it is to work these problems out with your neighbors in advance because at the board, these are problems that have not been worked out, and their solutions do not satisfy you or them. You know, they satisfy maybe in the best interest of the public, but, you know, that's not where to solve problems. Okay, well, I want to – I was just going to mention yeah. one thing on that. On appeals, it's also sometimes uh, uh, hardship. So if you're in there listening, they say hardship. It's – that's um, where you can't install a level landing or et cetera. And so that's an appeal and a hardship. And there are many appeals boards in the city. There's the Board of Examiners, and there's the you know, Abatement Appeals Board. You can appeal anything. Yes, sir.
you know the, the question is if you if there's utilities in the way and you can't put a handicap ramp and is that a reasonable hardship and the answer probably is no in fact i would bet heavily on that one and these appeals go to the access appeals commission which is under the department of building inspection and actually normally there is some way of solving that problem there are very very few cases that i've seen in my experience where disabled access is simply waived i i can i in fact i can't think of a single one and i've been doing this for many many years there's always a solution and i don't think that any appeals board would say oh no it's too expensive it's not reasonable you can't do it it's too much uh, there is too much an important part of the the way we live these days to to waive it no board is going to waive it but call me and i can help solve it there are many ways to solve problems there's always a way to solve a problem always a way okay well thank you all very much for coming we'll stick around if you have questions thanks again